Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Laying Down the Foundation. The book of Acts is a book about action. And do you like action movies? Do you like reading fiction that involves action? Do you like historical drama that you know involves great battles or the exercising of great leadership? And if you do, you're going to like the book of Acts. But for that matter, you're going to also like the Gospels, for they are the actions of Jesus Christ. The New Testament doesn't begin with a theological formulation nor with instructions about what you must or mustn't do or about how to build a church. I mean, the New Testament begins with one of God's powerful angels descending to earth to make an announcement to a young virgin in a backwater town of Nazareth. It's riveting from the first sentence, and then, boom, the action just begins. I remember once giving a young married woman, a woman from a culture that had never heard the gospel, I gave her a Bible. I instructed her to begin reading, not at the beginning, but rather I put a marker in the Bible and I told her to begin with the book of Luke. I said, after that, we'll talk about it. And then when she was ready, I'd help her to see what to read next. Well, this woman and her husband own a little pizza shop. And so I made it my business to show up frequently, have a bite to eat and to talk. And her husband said, what have you done to my wife? And I said, maybe you ought to explain yourself. And he said, well, she can't put that Bible down. She's fascinated with that. And then he said, I sure hope you're not trying to convert us. Well, that comment aside, I do know this. At the time she started reading, she had no commitment that she was reading the Word of God. But from the beginning, the action, the drama, the movement of the story just took her in and she couldn't lay the book down. Furthermore, she had all sorts of questions. And her husband, trying to get a control of the situation that he thought was spiraling out of control, told me, you know, I heard that Jesus never even thought he was the Son of God. And as he said that, his wife looked up and said, oh, no, honey, let me show you where. It was a lovely moment. See, I remember this, because so much of our Bible is action-packed, and so it should be no surprise at all that there is one whole book in the Bible that's called the book of Acts. It's the action of the apostles, but it's also the action of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin at the beginning, Acts 1, verses 1 to 2a. In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. The phrase first book in the Greek could also be translated as in my former treaties or in the first history that I've provided. And so we see that the book of Acts, according to its author, Luke, is actually volume two. In the first volume of my two-volume set, writes Luke, I wrote to you, O Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. In volume one, Luke does more than simply call him Theophilus. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. And from that, we understand today that's a way of addressing a man who belongs to the ruling class in society. You know, later on in Acts, we're going to be introduced to a man named Felix, and he's the governor of Judea from the years 80, 52 to 59, and he's going to be addressed as Most Excellent Felix. That seems a formal title. And so if you write your mayor, for instance, a letter, you're probably going to begin with the title, The Honorable, and then you're going to put in his or her name. 
If you address a judge, it's going to be your honor. If you address the crown, it's going to be your majesty and so forth. So most excellent then is a formal title for a member of the ruling class of that day. Now in the book of Luke, Luke begins by addressing most excellent Theophilus and then adds, I'm writing you so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, we understand that to mean that Theophilus was no doubt a convert to the Christian faith. He may also have had some influence either in the church or in the wider culture. And and so Luke is writing him so that when he shares his faith with others, he knows what he's talking about. Now, the book of Acts begins not with the words, most excellent Theophilus, but rather much more simply, O Theophilus. You know, since Luke has already sent him volume one, well, we've got to assume that volume two must have followed relatively quickly on its heels. And that's the reason why Luke doesn't write most excellent Theophilus in Acts, you know, because he assumes that Theophilus has just finished reading volume one, so he doesn't have to use the title again for a second time. Formalities have already been taken care of. And so as a way of introduction, we can say that Acts has been written to a Greek convert to Christ, a man who quite unusually was a member of the ruling class. Then says Luke in volume one, I wrote to you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up, that is in the ascension up into heaven. Now that's a very nice and quick one-line summary of the book of Luke. Luke is about the deeds and teachings of Jesus front to back. And then Luke adds a caveat which helps us clarify the intent of his first book, and that leads us quite naturally into volume two. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So clearly Luke wants Theophilus to know that something significant has happened during those 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Well, now, during those 40 days in which Jesus repeatedly met with his disciples, he instructed them through the Holy Spirit, says Luke. You know, as we know, the book of Acts will be about the activity or the actions of the Holy Spirit. And so we might think that Luke is, you know, he's already warming Theophilus up to the idea that the Holy Spirit is going to play a major role in the action of this book. Now, to be clear, the grammar doesn't say whether or not Jesus chose the apostles through the Holy Spirit or whether he instructed the apostles through the Holy Spirit. You know, but in truth, it really doesn't matter which way we take this line. We do know that before Jesus had chosen the 12, he had spent the night in prayer. And so we have to believe that the Holy Spirit led him in his selection of the 12. It's not just an accident. But more than that, anyone who's done any studies in the writings of Luke, both in the Gospels and in Acts, well, we'll see quite readily how often Luke mentions the Holy Spirit. Mary, says Luke, although she was a virgin, conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit. When John was baptizing at the Jordan, he promised that the Messiah who would come after him would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. After Jesus was baptized, Luke says he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. You know, in short, Luke's portrayal of Jesus is the portrayal of a man who was at each moment led by the Holy Spirit. Now, that might be surprising to some of us. I mean, 
you know, isn't Jesus fully God? And therefore, I mean, why does he need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, you know, both to pick the 12 and then after the resurrection to instruct the 12? I mean, being God, shouldn't it be that he's not dependent on anyone? But if we think that way, I mean, we might not yet have grasped the nature of Jesus' ministry. I mean, frequently he would say that he never acts on his own. He only does that which the Father directs him to do. And while he's praying in Gethsemane, Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. So please remember that the explanation of all of that is that Jesus is not only fully God, he has become fully man. And as man, he is dependent both on the Father to guide him and then on the Holy Spirit to empower him. As perfect man, Jesus humbled himself. He submitted to God and he humbled himself by being empowered by God. So you see, in one short line, Luke has not only told us what his first volume is all about, but he's also revealed to us that Jesus did what he did by humbling himself, becoming fully obedient to God, and also by being fully reliant on God. So, and in this way, Jesus is not only the object of our faith, of course he's that, but he's also the one whom we emulate. If the one who is fully God relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more so then should we do the same? And then on to verse 3. Remember, Luke is tying volume 1 and 2 together, and he does so by reminding Theophilus about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And so he writes, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during the 40 days of Jesus' post-resurrection ministry, Luke says essentially Jesus did two things. He proved that he was alive and he had risen. And secondly, he taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. Every month, Back to the Bible Canada sends out a ministry update email. This email includes links to the newest Bible teaching resources, special messages from Dr. Newfeld and others, and an exclusive five-minute audio program called Five and Five. This program is my opportunity to ask Dr. Newfeld, Phil, and other members of the team five insightful questions in only five minutes. All this exclusive to our monthly update email, sent out once a month, and you can have it sent to you by simply signing up at backtothebible.ca, or if you'd rather, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And when you're signing up, make sure to take a look at all of the free ministry resources available, our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, and the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, just to name a few. For more information or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. For some of us, I mean, the idea that Jesus needed to prove that he was alive, doesn't that sound strange? I mean, after all, if you're alive, you don't really have to prove it, do you? But we do remember several things. I mean, first, please remember that at one point, Jesus asked his disciples to touch him and to witness that he had real flesh and bones and that he was not a spirit. 
And you have to imagine the feelings that the disciples would have had. I mean, they had seen Jesus crucified, and you have to wonder that now that they see him, their minds must have been reeling. And the second reason they would have needed proof is because even though Jesus does look like himself, yet he doesn't. You know, at a number of moments, you might remember through your reading of the Gospels that the disciples seemed to struggle with whether or not it was really him. So, for instance, there was a time when they were fishing, and Jesus told them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and then they caught 153 fish. And when they got to the shore, Jesus had breakfast for them, and John 21 verse 12 says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast, and then he adds, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Again, does that sound strange to your ears? Well, I think it should. Have you ever been with someone you know, and then none of you asked who it was? You knew it was your friend Mike, let's say. You know, that, you'd never put things that way. You'd never say that. But all of that is because even though Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, yet the body with which he was raised was a transformed body. That is to say, his body was unlike every other human body. It wasn't subject to aging, disease, death. It was an eternal body. And as Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 15, he had a body that was imperishable, glorious, and powerful, not subject to human weakness. His body was not of this order, but it already belonged to the order of the age to come. And so he does look like himself, but he also is of an order that the disciples had never seen before. His resurrection, look, it's not the story of a resuscitated corpse. It's rather the transformation of the perishable into the imperishable. And for that reason, it was very important for Jesus to spend enough time with the disciples to demonstrate that he was who he said he was in a way that was undeniable. Of course, that would be vital. The time would come in the future, and that's what the book of Acts is all about, when the disciples would be involved in carrying out their life's work of bringing the gospel to the world, and it would be hard, it would involve suffering, and it's normal for people under very difficult circumstances to begin to ask themselves whether or not they've made a mistake in doing what they're doing. That's why Jesus made very sure that every doubt about his resurrection would be erased from their minds. Now, the second thing, says Luke, that Jesus did during these 40 days is that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, anyone who's ever read the Gospels is immediately going to recognize that the message of the kingdom of God was always Jesus' primary message. So clearly, Jesus had to go over what he had taught throughout his ministry. He had to reinforce it. And then he had to make sure that all confusion was cleared up, that they all got it, and they all knew what the central message was. You know, can you imagine what would have happened if the disciples disagreed with each other, you know, about what Jesus actually taught? I mean, what if one of the disciples said, no, no, Jesus taught, you know, most of all that we should be peacemakers. And then the other said, no, no, I understand him to say that he didn't bring peace at all, but a sword. And then another would say, well, you know, I think the main message was that he was a prophet. He was speaking against the corruption of the Jewish religious establishment. And then still another would say, no, he was just interested in healing people. He was a traveling healer, giving relief to people's sufferings. See, if the disciples had not understood the message of Jesus with great clarity, the Jesus movement would have fizzled out from the start. 
And so Luke is telling us that Jesus spent a great deal of time making sure they understood the central message. For 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. See, when Jesus first began to preach, the very first message was quite simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 4.43, Jesus had said that he must preach the kingdom of God in all the other towns as well. And then he adds, for I was sent for this purpose. In Luke 9, when Jesus gives his disciples their first ever ministry experience, he tells them to make sure that they go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, the parables of Jesus. I mean, he begins by asking, what is the kingdom of God like? And then in order to explain it, he tells the people a parable. I mean, always Jesus was talking about explaining and leading people to expect the kingdom of God. So it comes as no surprise then that the key feature of Jesus' instruction during those 40 days after his resurrection was to explain again reinforce, clear up any difficulties so that everyone is on the same page. Make sure you understand the kingdom of God. So from our vantage point, what's the kingdom of God? So let's start with the word kingdom. A kingdom is a domain over which a king rules. It's a realm over which a king has authority. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was often equated with the day of the Lord. See, a day is coming, said the Old Testament prophets, when evil and sin and unrighteousness is going to be defeated. And on that day, at the end of the present evil age, a great king is going to come. He's going to sit on David's throne, and he's going to bring all people and all nations to the place of judgment, and then God will rule over all things. And that's why Luke eleven twenty records Jesus as saying, but if it is by the finger of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's why in Luke 17, 20 to 21, Jesus says, you know, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That is, Jesus is saying, look, I am the king. I'm the one to whom the kingdom of God refers to. And of course, you know, not only did Jesus demonstrate that every time he cast out a demon and every time he healed the sick and every time he exercised authority over nature, and when he rose from the dead, he demonstrated again that he was king. He's the one who had authority over everything. You know, and furthermore, Jesus has come to rule in the hearts of men and women. He has, through his atoning death on the cross, been given authority to forgive sins and reconcile us to the Father and grant us eternal life and make us as his sons and daughters. So teach that, says Jesus. Baptize all in the authority of my name. Preach that I am Lord and King over every nation under heaven. And then call men and women to repent and receive forgiveness from me and become citizens of my kingdom. And so, You know, for 40 days, he explained his authority and his power and his kingdom. He showed them that even though men's sins deserve death, he as king was offering grace because of his death and resurrection. The heads of the disciples, you have to imagine now, they're nodding in the right direction. They're finally understanding. They've got a mission, preach the kingdom of God to every nation on earth and make disciples. Now to Acts 1, 4, and 5. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he said you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we know that on one occasion, while he was giving the disciples convincing proofs that he was alive, while he's teaching them about the kingdom, he also tells them, you know, after I go to heaven, don't do anything. You stay put in Jerusalem and you await the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is the introduction to the action. That's the the drama that's about to be played out. You see, there was no strategy session as to how they were going to reach the world when Jesus left. There was only prayer. There was waiting. There was one piece of the puzzle that was still missing. They needed the Holy Spirit. And what do we learn from that? Well, much in every way. How important is it to be convinced of the resurrection? How important is it for us to have our theology straight? How important is it for us to be utterly dependent, not on ourselves, but on the power of the Holy Spirit? And how important is it for us to be men and women of action and men and women who are committed to the mission that Christ has assigned to us? See, Jesus has commanded us, as he did to the first disciples, to preach the gospel to all people groups under heaven. And now we know what it takes to accomplish just that. Luke has begun to tell the story. John, thanks for your message. A quick question, though. You know, I think there's a unique message here in respect to Jesus and his not working in isolation. So what can we learn from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very natural for believers to assume of Jesus because he's the Son of God. Um, He's not dependent on the Father or dependent on the Holy Spirit. But clearly, I mean, when we read Jesus, we hear him saying uh, very important things. I mean, he he says that the Son can do nothing but what the Father has shown him. Um, you know, he is at all times dependent on the Spirit. So, you know, clearly Jesus as fully man um, gave us an example that we could live this way as well. So, I mean, the, the lesson for us is quite simple. Uh, whenever we try to do the will of God on our own power, we're always going to fail. We're always going to fail. Um, we need to learn from our Lord and Savior to rely on the grace that comes from God, uh, to be spirit-filled men and women, to know that the task that God has given us to complete cannot be completed on our own strength. We're basically going to fail, but that the Holy Spirit has been given, and for that reason, uh, we are hopeful and can follow the Lord's example. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Carissa wrote to say, Thank you, Dr. John Neufeld, for consistently providing deeply meaningful and theologically rich Bible teaching. I have particularly appreciated the new video series. It is encouraging to my spirit to hear words of truth and hope through his teaching. Thank you for continuing your work of faithfully proclaiming God's Word. We've been so grateful to introduce Back to the Bible Canada's new weekly video Bible teaching series. Each week, Dr. Neufeld searches deeply into God's Word, seeking truth for living a life that glorifies God. All of these programs can be viewed online or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, where both new and previous series can be accessed. And when you visit, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. For more information about every ministry resource or to support this ministry financially, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.